I want to extend a special welcome to all the parents of Wofford students here with us this morning. We're always glad you guys are with us on Parents Weekend. We know you've had a good uh, weekend with your children. I've, I've, I've noticed over the years that, that on Parents Weekend, and I don't plan this, but in the past I've preached on predestination uh, for Parents Weekend. And then one year I preached, for hell, I preached on hell on Parents Weekend. And so today we're going to talk about gender identity and sexual orientation. <laughs> We're not going there. Uh, we're actually going to start out by talking about a movie. Um, if you remember, there was a movie several years ago called There Will Be Blood. Uh, and it was about this oil tycoon named Daniel Plainview. And at one point in the movie, Daniel Plainview is trying to obtain a, a piece of land from a man named William Bandy because he wants to build his pipeline across his land to get his product more quickly to market. But Bandy doesn't want money from Daniel Plainview. Uh, instead, what he wants from him is he wants Daniel Plainview to come to his church, which is called the Church of the Third Revelation. And so you can imagine this is a somewhat Pentecostal church. And he wants him to confess his sins and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's what he said. And if you do that, then you can have my land. And so Plainview goes to church and he's sitting there and, and they have kind of their, their version of an altar call. And Plainview goes down front to confess his sins and the preacher named Eli forces him to kneel on the ground he says confess your sins he says I confess that I'm a sinner he's like no you need to more, be more specific and Plainview doesn't really know what to say and he says you need to confess that you've abandoned your son Plainview kind of looks at him like I didn't, we weren't supposed to go there but he says it to him again confess you've abandoned your son he says I've abandoned my son he says say it louder I've abandoned my son say it louder I've abandoned my son And then he looks at the preacher and he says this, Eli, let's go ahead and get this over with. Get get the blood of the lamb on me so I can get about my business. And he's being publicly, he's really being publicly humiliated. uh, But it's it's what he has to go through in order to get William Bandy to give him his land. And so he has this sort of conversion experience. But it's very obvious as you're watching the movie that it's not true conversion. He hasn't really come to Christ. He's just jumped through the hoop that he needed to jump through to get what he wanted. Uh, Last week, as we were looking at, at the book of Hosea, we saw or we looked at the passage where God calls his people to turn from their idol worship and to turn back to repent and to turn back to him, the living and the true God. Today what we're going to do is we're going to look at that repentance and ask the question, what does true repentance look like anyway? What what does true faith look like? What what does real conversion look like? And I think this is helpful for us to think about for a couple of reasons. One, uh, we're in the American South, which socially is probably one of still the most Christian places in the country, if not in the world. I mean, I don't know if they still ask this, or if they ever ask this on the census, but if they did, if they ask you, what's your religion, pretty much everybody in the South would check Christian, whether, whether they truly were Christians or not. And so it's possible in this sort of kind of soup of cultural Christianity that we swim in to profess the name of Christ, but to really not know Jesus at all. Uh, secondly, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and, and, and we're very thankful that, that you would choose to spend time with us this morning. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, it may be one of the reasons you've given over the years for not, being, not considering Christianity is the hypocrisy of Christians. 
Like that's, a, that's a big stumbling block for a lot of people. Uh, it's a valid criticism. So I think it's helpful if you're considering Christianity to think about what a real Christian looks like. To understand there are true Christians and false Christians. There are, there, there's such a thing as a Christian in name only. So that's what we're going to think about this morning. Let me read our text, uh, Hosea 6 and 7, uh, a reminder that this is God's word. And then we're, we're going to come back and read Matthew 9 a little later in the sermon. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I've hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they well upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. 
This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Pray for us. Father, we give you thanks this morning that you have uh, given us your word. We confess that that some parts of it are are heavier to us and some parts of it are harder for us to understand and to to figure out what it means for us today. Uh, So we pray for your help now in in understanding this text uh, and thinking about what it may mean for us uh, as we live before you today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we think about what true conversion, what true faith and repentance looks like, we're going to think about three different things this morning. Number one, uh, a Christian in name only has a short-lived faith, often has a short-lived faith, but a true Christian is in it for the long haul. Number two, uh, a second sign of a, a false or spurious Christianity is hypocrisy, while a true Christian is consistent. And then thirdly, a third sign of someone who's a Christian in name only is a lot of self-righteous religious activity, but a true Christian's life is marked by humble confession and faith in Jesus and love for Jesus. And note-taking people, I'm going to say all that again, so don't freak out right now. Um, And we're going to nuance those too. But first of all, a Christian in name only tends to have a very short-lived faith. While a true believer is in it for the long haul. In verses 1 through 3 of our text, which we really looked at last week, the prophet Hosea places himself alongside God's people and says, Y'all, we need to repent. We need to turn back to God. Let us return to God, he says in verse 1. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord, he says in verse 3. And then in verse 4, where we pick up today... Uh, Hosea lets us know that any repentance that may have happened in the part of God's people was actually very short-lived. He puts it this way, Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. He says it's like dew that's on the ground, and then before you know it, by the middle of the morning, it's gone. Or it's like a, a misty cloud in the mountains that burns off in the heat of the day. Uh, it's, it's like a dog who looks lovingly at their owner and then squirrel you know they're they're distracted by the squirrel that runs by so quickly he says your love is like that your love is like if you guys saw that painting that was that was sold last week and the guy built a little shredder into it so the so or maybe two weeks ago they bought this million dollar painting and then the whole thing starts shredding before their very eyes um jose is saying your your love is is like that it's here and then it's gone away Uh, Jesus talks about this type of behavior or warns about this actually in the Sermon on the Mount. Not the Sermon on the Mount, but in one of his parables where he warns, the the parable of the soils, where he warns that there are people who receive the word of God with great joy and excitement. But then when tribulation comes, they they will fall away from God. So what all this tells us is that there can be kind of a, a false conversion, a vocalized faith and repentance that never actually reaches the heart of the person. And so it isn't real and it doesn't last. Uh, This can look like walking down the aisle, saying a prayer, and then a few months later, everything is back to normal. This can look like getting caught up in some kind of religious excitement. And then when the emotion dissipates, you go back to the life you were living before. This can look like turning the God out of fear. But when you're kind of over all of that, You turn away once again. 
I heard someone say recently, they had heard Tim Keller say that a lot of the growth of his church happened uh, in the aftermath of 9-11. And I was telling that story to Michael Wilcox. And he said, yeah, I was in construction then. And we built a lot more churches right after 9-11. And I'm sure that some of that was genuine conversions, hopefully much of it. People uh, take an honest account of their lives during times like that. But it would be interesting to go back and see how many of those conversions actually took. How many of them stuck? How many of them were were just driven by getting caught up in the moment? False faith and repentance can look real for a moment, but it's short-lived. True faith lasts. Uh, First John says this, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had really belonged to us, they would have remained with us. In Hebrews 10, the author calls the people to persevere. He says, you need to persevere so that having done the will of God, you will then receive your reward that has been promised. Uh, When I was growing up, I took piano lessons for a very short period of time, probably six months to a year. I would ride my bike to my piano teacher's uh, house once a week, but that quickly got old to me. If I had truly loved that, I would have persevered. I'd be up here playing with these guys and showing Keith how it's done. But um, probably not. But, but I, I wasn't really into it. And so it was this kind of momentary fling. And then I went back to life as normal. True faith perseveres. Now, does that mean that a person who is, is truly a believer never falls down? I mean, no, it doesn't mean that. Uh, there, are, there, there are times when, when, when we as Christians fall flat on our faces. And sometimes that, that can go on for a season, for, for a long period of time. There are things we struggle with that they can't get right. But then we, we get back up and we confess our sin. And we run back to Jesus again. We persevere. I think perseverance is probably best demonstrated in the title of a book by Eugene Peterson. Uh, a pastor who passed away this past week. But he wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And I think that's a good description of what perseverance actually is. Uh, Peterson wrote this in, in, in his book. I'm quite sure that for a pastor in Western cultures, the aspect of world, and, and he's talking about the world, the flesh, and the devil, the aspect of world that makes the work of leading Christians in the way of faith most difficult is what Gore Vidal has analyzed as today's passion for the immediate and the casual. Everyone is in a hurry. The people whom I lead in worship, among whom I counsel, visit, pray, preach, and teach, want shortcuts. They want me to help them fill out the form that will give them instant credit in eternity. They are impatient for results. They have adopted the lifestyle of a tourist and only want the high points. But the pastor is not a tour guide. The Christian life cannot mature under such conditions and in such ways. What we're called to is a long obedience in the same direction. Uh, Christianity Today entitled their Remembrance of Peterson this past week, Eugene Peterson has completed his long obedience in the same direction. Uh, His family said this, among his final words were, let's go. And his joy, my oh my, the man remained joyful right up to his blessed end, smiling frequently. In such moments, it's best for all mortal flesh to keep silent. But if you have to say something, say this, holy, holy, holy. And so what we see is that 
counterfeit faith and repentance is, is short-lived. The person of true faith perseveres and lives this long obedience in the same direction. Secondly, uh, a Christian in name only is often hypocritical, while a true Christian is consistent. I think it's easy to get the impression when we're talking about the book of Hosea and we learn, okay, the people of God were worshiping Baal, this false god, and God was not happy about that. And so it's easy to get the impression that they had just abandoned worshiping God and were just exclusively worshiping Baal. But that, weren't, that wasn't true. What they were trying to do was, was to do both. They were, they were still going to church, as it were. They just went to God's church, and then they went over to Bell's church, and then they kind of went about their week and did whatever it was they wanted to do. They lived however they wanted to live. They showed up to worship, and they claimed to love God, uh, and then they just went about their weeks. And Hosea calls them out on this. Uh, look at verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away. Therefore, I've hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so he calls them out and then he gives them several images to try to convey all right here's what you're really like 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 you're coming to worship and you're saying you love me but here's what you're really like in verse four through seven he calls them an overheated oven he says he says the people and the kings you together have a passion for evil that's smoldering it's like you're on fire for sin you're consumed by sin uh, in verse 8, he compares them to a cake not turned over. Uh, think about us cooking a pancake and just cooking one side and never flipping it. And so you got one side that's kind of gooey and one side that's just burnt. And really, it's neither cooked nor uncooked. It's neither one. Jesus gets at this in the book of Revelation where he says, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Verses 9 and 10, Hosea compares the people to a deluded old man. He says, you're like an old man who's trying to pretend he's still a teenager. You you Israelites think you're in your glory days and you can't see that your nation is falling apart around you. In verses 11 through 13, he compares them to a senseless bird. Instead of remaining faithful to God, they go to God and they run to Assyria, then they go to God and they run to Egypt. You know, how often do we go through the religious emotions on Sunday morning and then run back to our pet idols Monday through Saturday? In verse 14, he criticizes them for their self-preoccupied prayer. He says, you guys, are, you guys aren't praying because you want me. You're not praying because you want to know me. You, you just want stuff from me. You know, you could say, your prayer is like a college kid holding up a, a sign at the football game says mom send money you don't really want mom you just want her to send some cash he said that's what your that's what your prayers are like verse 15 and 16 he compares them to a faulty boat Uh, think about going to the county fair and they give you a bb gun to shoot but they've made it kind of crooked and so you aim and it starts off right and then always veers off god's saying that's what your love is like for me like you start in the right direction every time you go off target 
And so what do we have here? We have Sunday worship, or it would have been Saturday worship in their case. We have Sunday worship, but they're consumed by sin. They go to Sunday worship, but, but they try to worship both God and false gods. They go to Sunday worship, but they can't see that their nation is falling apart. They go to Sunday worship, but Monday morning they chase their idols. They go to Sunday worship, but they pray self-centered prayers and actually praising God is a foreign concept to them. They start off straight on Sunday morning, but by Monday evening they're once again veered totally off course. And what Hosea is saying to them is, is your acts of worship can't cover up your behavior the rest of the week. Your acts of worship can't cover up your hearts. Their Instagram religion can't hide their Snapchat lies. God sees through their hypocrisy. Uh, I read a story this week of a police officer who many years ago um, pursued and prosecuted, chased after pedophiles. And then it was revealed that he was actually a pedophile himself. God saw through the uniform and the badge that he was trying to hide behind. We're always shocked when we hear about uh, church abuse scandals. Those seem like they're in the, the news all too often. God sees through the religious offices and religious apparel that clergy has hidden behind. Uh, I heard somebody this week saying, I've heard this many times before, I'm always nervous whenever I see somebody with that Christian fish on their business card because that means they're probably going to take advantage of you. God sees through the symbols that we try to hide behind. He sees it when we're one person on Sunday and another person during the week. When we're one person with these people and another person with other people. Uh, Counterfeit faith is marked by hypocrisy. True faith is marked by consistency. The who I am on Sunday matches who I am on Monday. The who I am at home matches who I am at work. The who I am with you matches who I am with the next person. The who I am on the outside matches who I am on the inside. One of my favorite pieces about uh, dating that I ever heard in terms of, like, how far can you go? How, how physical can you get? And, and the answer was this. You can do whatever, you think, whatever you'd be willing to do on the front row of the church. Right? That, that, that's your dating line. If you're comfortable doing it on the front row of the church, then, then okay. Uh, you know, that, that's the line for you. The, the who you are in public is the same person that you are in private. Now, let me say this. Uh, if those of us with more sensitive consciences might, might be going like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, Christians still get to sin, right? Like, or not get to sin, but Christians still sin, right? Like we still mess up. We still fall. Yes. And sanctification is a long slog, and, and, and it's messy. And there are things that, that we struggle with for our whole lives sometimes. But Christians confess their sin. And Christians begin to see their own inconsistency and grieve over that inconsistency and repent of that inconsistency. And Christians run back to Jesus. So don't don't misunderstand me. Consistency doesn't mean sinlessness. Consistency means that more and more I'm longing for my actions to match my faith. And I'm beginning to see that happen. It means that more and more my conduct is actually matching my creed. And when it doesn't 
I own that. I don't, I don't cover that up. I own that and I confess that. And I run to Jesus again. Now, thirdly, a third sign of someone who's a Christian in name only is self-righteous religious activity. While a true Christian's life is marked by humble confession and faith in Jesus and love for Jesus. Look at verse 6 here of chapter 6. This is kind of, the, I think, the key verse in this whole text. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now the word translated steadfast love here is the Hebrew word hesed. And, and that word kind of, and there's a lot of different English words sort of tied up in that. Uh, steadfast love, tender-hearted, compassion, mercy, all that's rolled into this one word. Now, Keep that in mind and flip over in your bulletin to the next page. This is a text from Matthew chapter 9. I want to read this for us for for this last point. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so what's happening in this text is Jesus is talking with Pharisees who are questioning Jesus because he likes to hang out with sinners and and eat with them. And what Jesus says to them basically is you guys don't understand Old Testament. You don't, specifically, you don't understand Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And you need, you need to go back and read that again so you'll understand this. In chapter 12 of Matthew, we're not going to read this, but he's having another run-in with the Pharisees about the Sabbath. He's healed somebody on the Sabbath, and they're jumping his case about this. And he basically quotes Hosea 6 to them again. He says, you guys don't, you don't understand this verse. You need to go back and think about this. So who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were people who had all their religious stuff together. Uh, and, and they took a great deal of pride in this fact. That, that they were the, the most religious people of their day. Uh, they offered the right sacrifices. They tithed the right amount of money over and, over and beyond the right amount of money. They had figured out how many steps they thought you could take on the Sabbath in order to not break the Sabbath, so they were rigorous about Sabbath observance. They made a big deal about praying their prayers really good in, in public so that you would see them and applaud them for that. And the whole time they kept a safe distance from sinners so they weren't contaminated by them. And Jesus is saying, guys, I want your heart, not your religious rituals. I want your heart, not your religious rituals. He's not saying the tithing or prayer, observing the Sabbath is, is not important. He's saying, if you really knew me, if you really knew my father, you would know that the most important thing to our heart is to love God and to love your neighbor. That religious activity is fine if it flows from a changed heart, if it flows from a change that has understood God's hesed, God's steadfast love, God's mercy to you, 
from a heart that's been amazed that God would show steadfast love and mercy to me. Uh, to a heart that has understood this in such a way that I am this undeserving sinner and yet God has shown His steadfast love and mercy to me. And so now that has caused me to be a person who shows steadfast love and mercy to people who don't have their acts together very well. Why in the world would I be compassionate to somebody who doesn't have their act together? Can't they just get their act together? I'm able to do this because if I'm honest, I know that I don't really have my act together. Yet here is God pursuing me and showing me his steadfast love and his mercy in Christ. False faith can lead to a lot of religious activity. Trusting that that religious activity is what's going to make me okay with God. And so I just check things off week after week and say, I hope, God, you got to take care of me now, right? Because I've jumped through all the religious hoops. While the person of true faith sees their sin and casts themselves upon the mercy of Jesus. And having experienced Jesus' mercy, they love him. Look with me one last text, and you'll have to take your Bible uh, to the Gospel of Luke. You've got a Bible with you, Luke chapter 18. And I, and I think this illustrates this very clearly, kind of this difference in this external uh, religion and religion of the heart. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The person who has been converted gets this. That it is not my righteousness, it is not my religious activities that somehow buys God off. But God is merciful to sinners, and I'm going to cast myself upon that mercy. And then having received this mercy, I'm going to do what Hosea says here, and I'm going to, I'm going to press on to know this Lord who has saved me better. I'm going to rest my hope for heaven upon this Lord who loves me. And I'm, and I'm going to do religious activities, but not to earn anything, not to, to try to impress God, not because it's what good moral people in the South do, but because I want to delight in this Lord who loves me and saved me. Um, I, I'm going to close with this. In his book, Desiring God, John Piper um, tells a story. He writes it as a poem about bringing his wife flowers. And I'm not a, a poet kind of person, so bear with me, but, I, but I, I think this will be helpful to you. He says, I say suppose it is today, our anniversary, let's say, the 25th, and I go down to some small florist in our town, and I buy a rose for every year that we've been married, then appear at our front door and ring the bell 
And then you picture that Noel swings wide the door and hears me say, as I hold out the rose display, a happy anniversary, Noel. And she responds for me, oh, these are beautiful, but why so much? To which I then reply while holding up my hand, you know, it is my duty that I go each year and buy what husbands ought to buy. I think I was well taught that there are proper ways to do these things. And I just wanted you to know that I am duty bound and that my character is sound. Well, at this point, the story stops because they laugh unless it flops and then they groan. But I inquire, what's wrong with duty? I admire this virtue very much. Do you not think that she was given due esteem, the object of such high and noble sentiments, that I should do what's right because it's right and not debase myself with a vain delight? It's odd that you should laugh or groan when so much rectitude was shown. Is not she honored as the goal of all my work and self-control by which all hedonistic thirst was held in check with no outburst? A question that I hope will show the answer, folks, is clearly no. How then shall she be honored more if not by duty at the door? To answer this, let us return now to the scene and watch and learn. Noel swings wide the door. I say while holding out the rose display, a happy anniversary, Noel. And she responds for me. Oh, these are beautiful, but why so much? To which I then reply, it makes me glad to bring you things. In fact, Noel, I think it brings me more delight to spend this night with you than anyone I might. Why don't you go dress for a date and tell the boys it may be late? I cannot think of any way I'd rather celebrate this day than satisfying my desire with one that I so much admire. Now, look, uh, we are not all going to have ooey gooey John Piperish teary-eyed love for God. That's okay? one of my criticisms of Piper sometimes. But, but, but look, there are times when you just do your duty as a Christian. Yes, absolutely. But if that's all there ever is in your life, if all of this is just drudgery and duty and there's no delight in God, then you've got to ask yourself some serious questions. Is your life marked by a self-righteous doing of your duty while you're condemning others who can't seem to get their act together and do their duty? Or is your life marked by love for the Savior who first loved you? Is your life marked by a delight in the Savior who takes delight in you? Let me pray for us. Father, I, uh, I pray this morning that, that it would be an opportunity for us to do some, some self-examination. Um, that we would examine our faith. That we would examine our hearts. That we would uh, look for consistency in our lives. That we would look uh, not just for religious activity, but for a true heart for Christ. Father, where we see we are coming up short there, would you help us? Uh, would you show us that Jesus makes provision for, for even us and all of our inconsistency and hypocrisy and lack of love? And as we see that, as we see Christ at the cross, would you change our hearts and make us into the people you would have us to be? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.